0: Please take your Bibles this evening. Thank you, Sarah. Please take your Bibles and turn to Luke 18. Looking at verses 9 through 17 this evening, the heart of the just, the title of the message. Two weeks ago in our time together, as we were preaching through chapter 18, verses 1 through 8, last week, recall, we took a little bit of a a, um, topical turn into election and defining the, the concept of election biblically. But two weeks ago, we read of Jesus teaching about the power of persevering prayer through the parable of the unjust judge and the persistent woman, the persistent widow woman. Jesus asked a question to finish our time in the text last week in verse 8. He was talking about the Lord avenging his own elect as they cry unto him day in and day out. And then he asked a question. He said, nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Will anyone still be praying? Will anyone persevere to the end? Not in faith, not, not, not the concept of perseverance of the saints and in the idea of salvation. That's not even the context, right? The context is prayer. Will anybody still be there in the end praying diligently, persevering in prayer as the Lord would ask us to do? Well, this evening, as we continue in the text, our Lord gets a bit more foundational. Speaking to a group of people who trusted in themselves, the text tells us. And we pick up in verse 9 with that. The Bible says, And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Jesus is speaking, the text says, to certain. Certain who trusted in themselves and despised. Others. We might assume from that that the target group of Jesus's parable this evening is the Pharisees, right? Uh, they are certainly those that would regularly trust in themselves and despise others. And we know that Jesus has been bouncing back and forth in his teachings from the Pharisees to his disciples or simply to the followers that are around at the time. However, it's, it's possible that this may not actually be a group of Pharisees. Um, and the reason why I would think this, and this is just me thinking as I've studied and, and the fruit of my own study and such, is because as we walk through this parable, we'll find that the object of the negative example in this parable is a Pharisee. So a Pharisee is going to be the negative object, the negative object lesson in a parable. And typically speaking, when Jesus gave parables, if he were going to be attempting to directly teach Pharisees, a lesson he would not use a Pharisee as the negative object lesson in a, in a, in a parable to Pharisees because that that would make him shut down right away wouldn't it and so as we see the object lessons that God gave to Pharisees oftentimes it would have something to do with the law say like the Good Samaritan where you saw a priest and a Levite and a Samaritan come by and so it would be something they would be intimately familiar with they would understand the dynamics but it wouldn't necessarily be The pharisee that did wrong because that would shut them down and and so it's quite possible here that as jesus's parables would generally be a little bit more distant from the people that he's speaking to that he may not actually be speaking to a group of pharisees here take that for what it's worth there's nothing in the text one way or another that's just a personal observation that that jesus often didn't do that he wouldn't target his target audience in the parable Uh, So, one way or another, however, his target audience is a group of self-righteous people. They are described first as trusting in their own righteousness. This would be specifically as it relates to their relationship with God, relates to their justification. The term justify means to be right before the law or to be free from guilt. In relation to the Bible, justification speaks specifically concerning the character, the will, and the word of God. What we might call the law of God and our guilt before him for sin. Keeping the law of God is the standard by which a man is said to be just. A just man is a man who kept the law of God. And though therefore is righteous and the scripture is established clearly without any ambiguity or any controversy That no man has ever been just within himself save our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that no man is himself righteous that no man is is Successfully or can be successfully self-righteous Romans chapter 3 verse 10 and following says this as it is written there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are, all to, they are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulchre. With their tongue they have used deceit. The poison of asps, that's a type of snake, is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursings and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifest, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned, and come short of the glory of God These verses need, leave no room for ambiguity on the point do they? Nobody is righteous. Nobody is justified in themselves. Nobody is justified by keeping the law No man is righteous through their own deeds. It cannot be it is not because all have sinned, but I'm a good person No, man is righteous before God, but I'm really kind to people No, man is righteous before God, but I always intend. Well, no man is righteous before God. But I'm a part of a Christian family. No man is righteous before God. But I try. I I I really put effort into it. No man is righteous before God. No man is right. No man is just. The law can make no man just. For even if I started obeying every command of God, even from my heart today. I have already fallen short of God's righteousness because I've already offended his holy standard. I'm already guilty. But the people that Jesus was talking to in this particular parable today don't really understand this or have chosen not to understand it more like. They believe that they in themselves were righteous. They believed that somehow a just God could overlook their sin because they deemed themselves to be a pretty good person. That their good should outweigh their bad. Well, God knows my heart. God does know your heart. You're right. (laughs) That's a problem, isn't it? So they deem themselves to be moral. They deem themselves to be religious. And this condition, a condition that we call self-righteousness, has a consistent and noticeable side effect in the hearts of those who have it. The side effect of self-righteousness in the hearts of those who are self-righteous is that they're constantly judging themselves against others. And they constantly judge others and they judge themselves against others by their standard of righteousness so that they can consistently affirm to themselves that they're better than others. And they seek to affirm to themselves that they're better than others because that is what gives them confidence to say, well, at least I'm not as bad as that guy, so God will let me in. So God will give me a pass. So they look at their neighbor or their fellow church member or they read the news and they read up on a politician or a celebrity or whoever, and they do so so that they can look at the other guy and say, well, at least I'm not him. At least I'm not like that guy. At least I'm not as bad as him. At least I'm more moral than him. And that gives them, it it dulls the edges of their conscience just enough to allow them to get on until they start feeling the guilt again. And then they can go around looking for people to compare themselves to again so that they can feel better about themselves. So the Bible tells us that these men were self-righteous and that the side effect of that is that they despised others. They counted others as nothing. They looked down on others as if they were better than them so that they could feel good about themselves, so that they could elevate their own estimation for the sake of their own self-righteousness. And upon this topic, Jesus gives a very powerful parable beginning in verse 10. Jesus says this, Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The contrast in the mind of the Jewish listener would be quite dramatic. As we know from the scriptures, and even mentioned already, the Pharisees were seen in Jewish culture and society as the pinnacle of legal and moral excellence. These guys were what we would call the cream of the crop. They were the best that Israel had to offer. The ideal representatives of of Israel to the world. They were morally excellent. They were legally astute. They knew the stuff. They did the stuff, all the things. On the contrary... The publicans were viewed as pretty much the worst that Jewish culture put out. We've talked about them before. We won't get into in depth with them again. But a publican was a tax collector for Rome, right? They were Jewish tax collectors for Rome. They were regularly guilty of theft, intimidation. They were dishonest men. And the Jews saw them on top of all of that as traitors to their own people. They would extract, for, the, for Rome's sake, they would extract unjust wages from their brethren. So we have, as we have seen so many times in the Scripture, Jesus chooses complete extreme opposites to drive home his point, right? We've seen this time and time again. We saw this with the rich man and Lazarus, right? The rich man fared sumptuously and had everything, and Lazarus was this poor, lame man who, and the dogs licked his wounds. And then we saw this just uh, two weeks ago with the widow and the unjust judge, right? We had mentioned that the reason why those characters were used is because the widow, woman, was the most helpless woman, most helpless person in society, and the, the judge of a city was one of the most powerful men in this society. And so we see the extreme contrast to drive home a point. We see it again this evening. Each of these men, Jesus tells us, goes into the temple to pray something every Jewish man was expected to do. And Jesus describes each of these men's prayers. That's the bulk of the content of this this parable, these men's prayers. And we begin with the prayer of the Pharisee in verses 11 and 12. Jesus says, The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican, You can see him pointing to that man as he's praying or even as this publican i fast twice a week i give tithes of all that i possess what a prayer huh the text tells us almost in order to set the tone for his prayer that the pharisee prayed with himself Right? It's like he's giving himself a big bear hug as he's praying. He is he he is coming with the list, he's coming to his boss with the list of everything that commends himself to himself, to his boss. He's praying with himself. His focus and his prayer is upon himself, upon his merits, upon his accomplishments. It's a prayer of boasting. It's a prayer of judgmentalism. It's a prayer of pride. It's a prayer of self-righteousness. And if we know anything about prayer, it's that self-righteousness and pride don't couple themselves well with prayer if we want to get anything done on our knees, right? So he thanks God. Thanks God that he's better than everyone else. He thanks God that he's better than other men morally. He thanks God that he's not an extortioner, that he's not unjust, That he's not an adulterer and by the way those those are good things not to be or he says or even God thank you even that I'm not this publican pointing to the man who had entered as well to pray unto God he continues to run down the merits of his own existence he fasts twice per week he gives tithes of everything he possesses and again none of these things are wrong Certainly the moral expectations are not wrong, but also the religious, right? When Jesus was rebuking the Pharisees for majoring on the minors and minoring on the majors, he said, you tithe of your anise and your cumin, and yet you, you uh, despise the widows, right? You don't care for the widows. And, and he says, these ought ye to have done. You ought to have done the tithe of the little things. You ought to have done the religious things and not to have left the others undone." So he wasn't rebuking them for being religious, he was rebuking them for allowing their religious to-dos to overshadow the spiritual necessities of following Christ, right? Of following the Lord. And so we have this same idea here that that these are not necessarily bad things. It's good that this man was not an extortioner. It's good that he was not unjust. It's good that he was not an adulterer. It's good that he would fast. It's good that he would tithe. They aren't bad things. But here's the thing. None of these things can justify a man. For by the deeds of the law is no man justified in his sight whether that's moral deeds or religious deeds, no man is justified in God's sight through those deeds. Because though a man keeps the whole law, James chapter 2, verse 10 tells us, though a man keeps the whole law and yet offends in one point, he is guilty of all. If you keep the whole law, but you offend one point of the law, you are now guilty of breaking the law. Aren't you? If you keep the whole law, If you keep every driving law on the books, except for one, you can still get pulled over for the one law that you're not keeping. You're guilty of breaking the law if you break the law. There is none righteous, no, not one, because none of us has kept the whole law. No, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Our works Our efforts, our morality can get us nowhere with a perfect and holy God. We see a dramatically different prayer, however, from the publican. This immoral man who extorts and collects taxes for Rome, who is a traitor to his own people, and we read his prayer in chapter 18, verse 13. Bible says and the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven but smote upon his breast saying God be merciful to me a sinner the publican the text tells us stood afar off because he did not feel worthy to come near to the Lord he 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 stood as far off presumably maybe not as far off but he stood Far off in the temple you, you, need, you went to the temple to pray but he didn't get too close he didn't feel worthy to get too close the text tells us he would not lift up his eyes to heaven not feeling worthy to raise his eyes unto the Lord but rather in the posture of a humble servant who might bow before his Lord on a knee and then put his head down and never ever ever look up at the at, at that King without permission you see this in history in many cultures particularly the cu- cultures where they regarded their emperors as gods uh, ja- uh, Chinese culture Japanese culture and such where you were not allowed to look at the Emperor you were not allowed to look at the King when you entered into their presence this man would not so much as turn his eyes unto heaven Posture of humility is what we're talking about here The posture of humility Rather the text says he smote his breast While saying God be merciful to me a sinner I'm not going to smack my breast tonight because I've got a microphone here But he's hitting his chest saying me God it's all me I'm the sinner I'm the sinner It it is also a self-centered prayer if we can call it that But in the exact opposite way right God, I'm unworthy. God, I'm a sinner. God, I am nothing. The Pharisee says, God, I'm everything. Thank you for making me everything. Thank you that I am everything. The other says, God, I am nothing. I don't even have with which to come before you. This man has no false pretense regarding his own spiritual condition. He has no false ideas of his own merit. This man is not comparing himself to those lower than him. He was not thanking God that at least he wasn't a harlot or a murderer. He saw no sliding scale of moral impurity that would allow him to feel justified regarding the evil thoughts and intents of his heart. We read nothing about himself and his merit, only that he is unworthy. He sought not thanksgiving for the man that he had made himself into, Only mercy from God for falling so short of God's perfection. And of this contrast, Jesus makes only one remark to end his parable, and this is the point of the parable. He says in verse 14, I tell you, this man, that would be the nearest antecedent to that is the publican, right? This man went down to his house justified rather than the other for everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted the publican for all of his moral failings is the only one of these two men that left that temple that day justified in God's eyes the Pharisee in all of his pomp and morality and legality and religiosity received all the rewards that he sought from the self-righteous affirmations which his personal grandstanding achieved for him In other words, he left feeling pretty good about himself and that was the extent of his reward. The heart of the Pharisee had no humility, no love for God, no recognition of any true need. It was only another form of pride, the God of self manifesting itself in another way, him feeding his own flesh. And these things do not commend themselves to the heart of God. But the man who knowing himself comes to God to gain from god what he knows he cannot gain in himself the man who says i am not something special i cannot be something special god make me something special in you that man is justified and he gives the point here at the end a point which is well familiar to us by now in the gospel of luke the man who exalts himself shall be abased the man who humbles himself shall be exalted by god This is the way that God has designed it to work. This is God's economy. This is how God operates. If you want blessing from God, if you want God to exalt you, if you want God to lift you up, it's not a mystery as to how to make that happen. Lower yourself before God as low as you can go lower yourself in your own estimation as low as you can go in every way you can the lower you get the more god can exalt you humility literally frees god within the bounds of his character to exalt you in a way that his character cannot do otherwise and this is the end of the parable it's not the end of our Uh, exposition this evening however we continue to another event which relates very closely to the concept Jesus just taught in verse 15 the Bible says and they brought unto him also infants that he would touch them but when his disciples saw it they rebuked them So they, being the multitudes, remember Jesus is speaking to a group here, a self-righteous group, um, certainly not the whole crowd, but some in that group, uh, and them being a multitude, they brought infant children so that Jesus would touch them. Uh, This would likely have been for a blessing of sorts. People have always harbored some desire to simply touch a person or even a person's clothing that they feel is divinely blessed. Think of the woman with the issue of blood. If you recall, she had an issue of blood, and she said, If I may but touch the hem of Jesus' garments, I know I will be healed. And indeed, when she touched the hem of his garment, she was healed. We think of perhaps the people in Acts chapter 5, who, knowing Peter and Peter's reputation in Jerusalem, sought simply to be touched by his shadow, hoping they would bring their lame and their sick to be in the streets, hoping that just Peter's shadow would touch them the bible doesn't tell us if anything happened when peter's shadow touched them but that was their desire we might regard these things as superstitious to some degree as right we should but this one thing i know if i had had the opportunity for the son of god to take up my child and confer a blessing upon him i would have taken it up too So Jesus is picking up these infant children. And the word there um, in the Greek is is, uh, an unborn child or a very small infant child. And the disciples, when they saw it, they rebuked these people. Likely having something to do with perceiving this to be trivial, not worth the Savior's time. Perhaps uh, something to that effect. And Jesus had a very... Pointed response to them in verses 16 and 17. He says, uh, The text says, But Jesus called them unto him and said, Suffer little children to come unto me, and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. Verily I say unto you, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child shall in no wise enter therein. Jesus responds, quite directly, exhorting them to allow these children to come to him, not to hinder the children. And he says, for such is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is made up of those who are like children. We talked about this several weeks ago in Luke, the beginning of Luke 17, right? Verses um, 1 through 10. Uh, We referenced it this morning. We're still kind of dealing with that passage in our morning uh, mini-series as we're talking last week and this week about offenses. Next week, we'll talk about forgiveness. Forgiveness. And we talked about how Jesus said it, it's better for a millstone to be hung around your neck and for you to be cast into the sea than for you to offend one of these little ones. And we mentioned as we traced it through in Luke 17 that the little ones there was very likely not speaking of little children, but rather speaking of disciples, young disciples, those who are young in the faith or those who are seeking uh, or those who are, are, um, are weak in the faith. And so we established that, but then we also mentioned in Luke 18, we'll come to a passage where we are talking about children, where we do see Jesus' love for children. We're there. Here we are. This is it. We found it. Jesus says, Don't forbid the children. And don't forbid the children, he says, because all who come into the kingdom of God come like children. They have the simplicity of faith simply to let go of their inhibitions, their fears and their concerns to make themselves vulnerable unto the Lord and to trust the Lord. And this is what it takes to accept the gospel. No one who does not come to Christ with this mentality will enter into the kingdom of God. No one who cannot implicitly trust the saving work of Jesus Christ can enter in because that is the condition of the gospel that you place your full faith and trust in the finished work of Christ. No one who cannot yield any and every dead work or safety net and fling themselves wholly upon the grace of God for salvation will enter in on the day of judgment. So, he says, don't forbid the children. Quite to the contrary, wouldn't we understand then that physical children are likely at the most advantageous time in their lives to hear the gospel? That the easiest time to receive the gospel like a child is in fact when you are a child unencumbered by the confusion that the world introduces into things of faith children are naturally humble because they know just how small fish they are in such a big pond they don't harbor any delusions of grandeur so they trust because they can do little else they follow because they can do little else They believe because they see no reason not to believe. If you've ever been witnessing, you'll understand a trend over time. It's not a a, a trend that is absolute, but it's a trend that even the scriptures present, that the wealthier, the stronger, the more honorable, the more prestigious a person is, the harder it is for him to come to Christ. 1 Corinthians tells us this straightly. Jesus actually tells us this straightly. It's easier for a rich man, uh, for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God, he would say. James tells us these things as well. What's the idea between all of these passages about wealth? Does it mean rich man can't get into heaven? Well, no, it simply means that when you've got, when you've been pulling yourself by your own bootstraps and you've been quite successful, you kind of resent someone telling you there's nothing you can do for yourself to get yourself to heaven. You kind of resent the idea when you're honorable or strong or, or you have great capacity or you've always done it your own way and things have always worked out. You kind of resent the idea that now you're being told, well, actually, you're a sinner. There's nothing you can do about it. And you have to fling yourself on the mercy of, of and, uh, your creator God to be saved. But when you're on rock bottom and you have nothing and, and, and your life is, is a mess, it's not hard to, to, to come to the point where you say, yep, I need someone. I need some help, right? And so it's a good thing. To reach children before they've been encumbered by the cares of this world. And that's what Jesus is telling us here. We'll uh, talk about this more in our application. Uh, several points of application this evening. The first one simply put Justification comes only to the humble by complete faith. This is the gospel. We've heard it before earlier in the message We read Romans chapter 3 verses 10 through 23 and we did that to establish the fact that no man is righteous No man in himself pleases God No man can get himself to God because we are all sinners and so we have fallen short of God's perfection of God's standard of God's glory Let's pick up in Romans chapter 3 and we'll, we'll pick up in, uh, in verse 23 again and we'll read through verse 26. It says this, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God to declare I say at this time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus if we aren't justified by our works if we aren't justified by our efforts if we aren't justified by our good intentions if by the deeds of the law no man is just in his sight then how are we justified how can we like this publican Leave justified. Humble submission to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to the redemption of Jesus Christ. It's a free gift. A gift by its very nature has no strings attached, right? A gift by its very nature comes with no obligations or expectations. If we come upon... Now, now my, my, my little girls had their birthday this past week, and if I had given them their gifts and then said, okay, now because of your gifts you have to go do this, well, then I just... Purchased their effort. I just bartered with them. I did not give them anything a gift has no strings Attached or it's not a gift if obligation or expectation is involved. It's not a gift. It's payment its exchange its wages It's bribery. It's something else But mankind the bible says is justified freely by the grace of god purchased on the cross at which time jesus became the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation means to satisfy, one, uh, to satisfy the wrath or the, the, uh, the expectation of another. And the point is that Jesus took the Father's wrath against sin upon himself, completely satisfying God's wrath against sin on the cross. So that 1 John 2, 2 tells us that he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the entire world. What that means is that Jesus died for every single person who has ever lived. His blood was shed for your sins. And Jesus satisfied the Father's wrath for your sin in himself. And as this is the case, what does this mean for us in regard to redemption? Well, Paul continues in verses 27 through 30. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works. Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yea, of the Gentiles also, seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and uncircumcision through faith. And faith allows this amazing thing to happen. It allows God through the propitiation of his son Jesus Christ to both be just because he has punished sin and justify the sinner because the sinner's sin is already punished it's already paid for he can be both just and the justifier of them that believe in Jesus Christ but as with any gift this gift of salvation though free and without any strings attached Still must be received if it is to be yours. Which is why we state this point the way we do that justification comes only to the humble. Because if there's any kernel of self righteousness left in regard to your standing before God, if you still cling to any deed, any work, any merit of your own as a means to trust that you are going to get to heaven or that you have forgiveness from sin, then you've not truly believed the gospel. Hebrews chapter 6, 1 describes it as repentance from dead works and faith toward God. And this is what it means to believe, to accept the gospel, to fully invest our hearts with every ounce of our being into this promise that Jesus took the work on the cross, that Jesus died and he was buried and he rose again and he is God and that he is just and that his, just, his righteousness can be ours. When we accept it, we receive it. Justification comes only to the humble by complete faith. Point number two, God wants your works, but only as an extension of your righteousness, not to define your righteousness. The Pharisees did many good works. They did many moral things, but it is always important for us as believers to remind ourselves that religion does not define our relationship with Jesus Christ. Religion enriches our relationship with Jesus Christ. Religion is not a bad thing. We're, we're in an age right now that, that that where a lot of people are spiritual but not religious, right? And typically that means I want to say that I believe in God, but I don't want any obligation I don't want to feel any sort of anything as far as my obligation to God. It's just him obligating himself to me uh, It's kind of the Santa Claus syndrome, right? That sort of an idea My righteousness is not established by my good works my good works flow out of my righteousness in Christ your relationship with Christ like any relationship will be work You will feel closer on some days. You will feel more distant on other days You'll have good days in your bad days If you've had if you've ever had a close relationship with anyone, you know that relationships are hard work You know that they take hard work. They take communication. They take self-sacrifice. They take thought they take prayer. They take patience There are good days and there are bad days. There are distant days. There are close days. All of that's a part of having relationships. But your relationship with Jesus Christ, though it might have some good days and some bad days, some close days and some not close days, it should not be a chore. It doesn't flow out of obligation. It flows out of love. It flows out of grace. Like a properly adjusted husband and wife, who, while not perfect, yet truly delight in honoring and blessing and serving one another... The things that please god in christ should be a joy for us they should not be a chore for us parents whether your child is having a good day or a bad day you love them and they are still your child right yes i i can at least speak to it in my own life but as your children learn to do right they don't just become your children they become your pride and oftentimes they become your friend as they grow and you relate to them and you enjoy them and you spend time with them and all of those things aren't necessarily implicit in the fact that they are your children but you're proud of them in every right way not arrogance but pride to call them your children because their words and their actions honor you as believers we are children of god and as we do right and as we dedicate ourselves to the work of the lord and as we work on that relationship and as we grow and as we keep ourselves in the right place with god We make God proud of us. We honor God's name, God's word, and God's redemption through His Son, Jesus Christ. Is God really proud of us? Hebrews 11 says that. Hebrews 11, as it espouses those that had faith, the Bible says that that in regard to those that had faith, that followed the Lord, that God was not ashamed to be called their God. What a beautiful statement. God was proud of them. He was not ashamed to be called their God. And this is what it means to be a christian christianity has nothing to do with what you can and can't do with rules and regulations with religious observances christianity is you in a loving relationship with the god who is our father and then you joyfully expressing your love to him through obedience to his will through doing and not doing through religion and observances And so it is that the greatest commandment, when Jesus gave the greatest commandment, and when Jesus asked about the greatest commandment, the greatest commandment was not thou shalt do. The greatest commandment was thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. Point number three. First point, justification comes only to the humble by complete faith. That's the gospel. Point number two, God wants your works, but only as an extension of your righteousness, not to define your righteousness. Part three, guard yourself against establishing your rightness by comparing yourselves to others. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12 says this, For we dare not make ourselves of the number, or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise humans have a tendency to compare ourselves among ourselves or to measure ourselves by ourselves (laughs) I look at myself and I say well I had every good intention so I guess I'm okay and the best way that I the best way for me to relate myself to this is driving Driving. Because when I am driving, and I need to get into that lane over there, and it's three lanes away, and there's a lot of traffic, and so I go, Poof, right? And I get into that lane, because I need to, because I've got to turn, and there's my exit, and the kids are screaming, and, and you know, someone's got to go to the bathroom, and I've got to get over, right? And I put my hand up like, sorry, right? And then there I am, and I'm in that lane now. And I should hope, I would hope, that everybody in all of those lanes would understand my intentions, that I'm not malicious, that this isn't just normal me, that 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 this is just I I I I, I didn't see the exit, whatever. There's a problem here. I got to get over. Now put yourself in the car of someone who just got cut off, and you see that car go, and you see the hand go up, sorry, and you know kids are screaming in the back seat, and oh. What do you think about them they had every evil intention in the world right as i describe it they woke up that morning thinking i'm gonna who am i gonna cut off today right we have this tendency to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt because we know our intentions and to never ever give anyone else the benefit of the doubt what we do is we judge ourselves against ourselves and then we compare ourselves against others In order to position ourselves morally in the world and it's not wise folks it is not wise there is only one standard by which any man or woman is judged and that is God's standard we read this morning as we spoke of offenses against the weaker brethren this in Romans 14 verse 4 Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. In the parable Jesus gave us, uh, uh, Jesus gave the Pharisee, um, uh, excuse me, in the parable that Jesus gave, that Pharisee established his own self righteousness by comparing himself to a moral standard that he had erected in his mind against the publican. And this is unjust judgment. I have no right to judge another man's servant. That other man's servant will be judged by his master. God is my master. God is your master. I will not be judged against another servant. God is not going to stand... Uh, we said this morning that when I stand before God, when you stand before God, pastor's not going to be standing at God's right hand, right? As a part of that judgment. Also, when, when you stand before God pastor's not going to be standing next to you and God's going to say okay well there's pastor and then start comparing us one to another well you did that well and you did this well and he did that better than you and he did that better than you and so you know, he's not going to do that he's going to judge you by a standard and that standard is himself his word at my house one of my daughters is responsible to wash the table while the other is responsible to sweep the floor And if the one who was told to wash the table doesn't do a good job, it would not be unexpected for me to hear my daughter say, but my sister didn't do a good job sweeping the floor either. To which I respond, what does the quality of your sister's job sweeping the floor have to do with the quality of your job washing the table? Well, it has nothing to do with it, however, but I can look at the floor and say, it's still dirty, so why are you upset at me for for the table still being dirty? Well, because I don't judge the quality of the table being clean against the quality of the floor being clean. That's not a just judgment. But any way that we can work to divert the attention off of our failings to others is simple human nature, isn't it? Well... Instead, the daughter who was told to wash the table will be judged only against my expectation of her and her job, whether she washed the table. In, in like manner, I would not go up and say, do you see how clean the floor is when I'm trying to judge the table, or do you see how clean the table is I'm trying to judge the floor? I judge the floor on its merits, I judge the table on its merits, and I judge the work of each child on their merits. So then why do we live... As if we will be judged by god against the actions and expectations of others and that's the question why do we live saying appeasing our conscience by looking at somebody else who has failed harder than we have or who is doing worse than we are and say well at least i'm not that person so i guess i'm okay well let's judge ourselves by a righteous standard let's not judge ourselves uh against ourselves let's not judge ourselves by measuring ourselves not just against ourselves but against others let's measure ourselves against God's expectation for us and let's allow that to be our 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 gauge and if you gauge your spiritual success or failure at any given point in time by the standard of how others are doing you're not being wise final point here I've made it so many times it's repeated so often in scripture so we'll just keep making it because if scripture repeats it then we need it right point number four humility 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 i was talking to my wife this afternoon just thinking about some things and i looked at her and i said it is amazing how far humility can get you it is amazing the multitude of sins that can be covered by a humble heart. It is amazing the relationships that can be repaired through humility. It is amazing the purity that can be maintained in a spiritual relationship or a physical relationship through humility. If I could sum up the essence of what it truly means to be a follower of Christ, I could do no better than to simply use this word, humility. Humility. God wants to be glorified. God deserves to be glorified. And nothing glorifies God like having those who had rebelled against him come back to him in love and submit themselves to his authority. But the most obvious reason why humility is the essence of what it means to be a follower of Christ is because humility is the essence of what Jesus Christ was and who Jesus Christ was. Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 8 says this, before the father but the necessity of humility is not the only lesson that we learn from his example we also learn about the reward of humility don't we verses 9 through 11 tell us this wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God exalts the humble. You can believe it, you can trust it, you can rely upon it. But do you believe it? Do you trust it? Are you relying upon it? So James would tell us in James chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. But he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. This is the publican, is it not? Smoting his breast, standing afar off, not turning his eyes unto heaven, and saying, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. He's being afflicted. He's mourning. He's weeping. And he's the one that walked away justified. Pastor, what does it mean to humble myself before God? It means this. If God says it, believe it. If God commands it, obey it. If God wants it, give it. If God loves it, you love it. If God hates it, you hate it. Make God's opinion your opinion in everything. Make God's perspective your perspective in everything. Make God's priorities your priorities in everything, regardless of the earthly consequences, regardless of your perception of things. And if you'll do this on the authority of the word of God, not only will you be happier for it because you're doing what you've designed to do, but there's a spiritual divine blessing waiting for you on the other end. Do it God's way, you won't be sorry. Excuse me, one more point. I'm sorry, I thought that was the last point. One more point this evening. There were five points. The final point. Suffer the little children. After the parable, we read about receiving Christ as would a child. But let us remember as well that we should receive the children. God's people should see children as an opportunity rather than an inconvenience. God's people should value the process of teaching them God's Word. God's people should value the simplicity, the innocence, and the love of children. God's people should protect children, protect their conscience, protect their innocence, protect their love for God and for truth and for others. God's people should cherish children for who they are and for what they could become in Christ. God's people should seek to mold the next generation not shoo them away as if they're just unworthy of our time. And most certainly, God's people should never assume that the truths of Scripture are not accessible to children. If you've ever in- interacted with children, you know that they're a lot smarter than we give them credit. And we know this. Uh, anybody that's interacted with children, you, you know that they're a lot, a lot smarter than we give them credit. But you know, a lot of times this doesn't translate over into how we teach them the Scriptures. And so we spend all of this time teaching them all of these these really watered-down lessons only to have to rewire their brains later in life Because they picked up on it all in this really watered-down fashion When if we just teach them the truth, they may not get it all right away, but it's in there and when it clicks it'll click and it'll make sense Far better if it should need be that we teach them things they may not understand then we should not teach them things that they would understand if only we took the time and effort to help them and i am preaching a little bit to the choir here because that's the entire model of this church is it not that's why we do what we do we do what we do the way we do it because we are convinced that we need to start from very young age as families as fathers and mothers Dedicating ourselves even at the inconvenience to ourselves of raising our children up as unto the Lord The heart of the just is very much like the heart of a child it is trusting it is faithful It is humble far from puffed up. It is made low and the question that we ask ourselves this evening is simply this How is your heart? Are you more like the Pharisee or the publican? Are you justified? Have you accepted the gospel? Are you trying to define your relationship with God by your works rather than defining your works by your relationship with God? Are you comparing yourselves to yourself or to others in order to establish your position before God? Are you humble? Are you suffering the children to come? As we close this evening, let's allow the Holy Spirit of God to take these questions, to take these concepts, And to root them in our hearts that we may become better followers and better mimickers of our Lord Jesus Christ.